From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. How one elementary school class is coping with the pandemic. Our education reporter Jenny Brendine will follow the kids and their teacher all school year. Plus, COVID-19 has meant early release for hundreds of Colorado inmates. What are their prospects for employment? Then, before his trailblazing career in music, Chuck D's first love was illustration. Works by the Public Enemy frontman have come to Colorado, along with pieces by some of his favorite artists. I've gone around the planet, and the name of hip-hop and rap music has seen art around the world. But to be able to put it to a canvas and hang it in a particular gallery is a good discussion. Chuck D will also share a reboot of Fight the Power. The year is 2020, the number. Another summer gets down. Sound of the funky drummer. Music hitting the heart cause I know you got This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This is a school year like no other because of the pandemic, with some kids learning remotely, others in classrooms, a mix of both scenarios for still other kids. Our education reporter, Jenny Brendine, is keeping her eyes on the big picture, but she'll also be visiting one classroom throughout the school year to see how a teacher and students are carrying on. And hi, Jenny. Hi, Ryan. Some kids have been back in the swing of things for about a month, others less than that. Uh, Overall, I'm wondering how students feel being back in the class. Well, especially the younger kids in particular, they're really happy. And in this particular school I went to, especially at recess, just watching them run freely. I don't think we as adults fully comprehend how hard this has been for children. Uh, One little boy in the school I'm visiting, Sebastian, he sat down next to me, and this is how he described the past five months. I was excited from coming to school because at the house doing nothing, there was nothing to do. I was so bored. I would just always like be sitting on the couch doing nothing, sometimes helping my mom with her work. His mom cleans houses and he helped her a lot. But yes, the kids are really happy to be back. Tell us about this project to focus on a classroom, room 132 at Josephine Hodgkins Leadership Academy. Yeah, the idea is to do a series of stories that examines a teacher who faces this daunting task of meeting kids' needs as the pandemic evolves. Remember, these kids have been out of school for five months. Many of them have extra emotional or academic needs, and teachers are in this really uncertain environment. And tell us more about this school, Jenny. It's a traditional public school, preschool through eighth grade. It's in the Westminster School District. It's a working-class neighborhood. Nearly 90 percent of students qualify for federal free and reduced-price lunch. Almost half are English language learners, and the high poverty level was one of the driving forces for why this district wanted to open its doors. Right. I mean, I understand that Westminster Public Schools made it clear, I think as far back as early June, that it wanted to open its doors. Yeah, this really caught my attention. Uh, Obviously, the district's first priority was we want to make sure that any reopening plan is safe. But the language that Superintendent Pamela Swanson used in her letter to health authorities about why they wanted to reopen, it was strikingly powerful. She talked about students at home uh, at risk of depression and suicidal thoughts. She talked about families at risk of losing their income because they have to stay at home to watch kids who couldn't be in school. Our main concern, though, with not bringing kids back 
or even postponing and starting up school even later was that we would widen the achievement gap. The achievement gap, the gap in test scores and other outcomes between lower income and more affluent students. What do we know about remote learning and how effective it was or is for students? There's no national data on this, but more than a dozen national surveys show remote learning has exacerbated inequities. Black and Hispanic students, they suffered because poor access to the Internet and technology. Many kids were actively, you know, taking care of their younger siblings at home. But how actively kids were participating in remote learning was low across the board. Teachers estimate 60% of students were regularly participating, only 60%, but figures were much higher for affluent schools. So the Westminster School District just felt it was imperative to open up classrooms for families who wanted it. That's right. But they also have a virtual academy for students who prefer to do that 100% online learning. Well, Jenny Brundine, our education reporter, let's go inside Renee Sutton's room 132. She teaches level three or third grade. How did she feel about going back to school in a pandemic? Sutton had some worries. Uh, She has a 93-year-old grandmother she cares for once a week, but her husband, he works in a warehouse and he worked all through the pandemic, stayed safe. So she thinks that put her mind at ease somewhat. She was really more worried about not knowing what school would look like. It's really hard to wrap my head around what this is going to look like because good teaching, all the things that we were taught that makes good teaching, you know, group work, kids working together and talking about it and doing all that, it's like, nope, now you can't do that. Hmm. Sutton likes challenges, though. She's a problem solver. Yeah. What is it like in her classroom, Jenny? Well, the big thing is there's only half the number of kids there usually is. So there's about 10 to 12 kids. Uh, She's found this an unexpected boon. It's allowed her to let kids talk to one another. Uh, Even just the two, though, that are at each table. Everyone's spread out. Everyone's in masks. Uh, Here's a little girl, Valentina, on her favorite time of the day. Uh, Now that's uh, when they have meals. Because they can take her mask off for a while when we eat breakfast. Oh, I'm with you there, Valentino. I, I, I can imagine that they don't much like wearing masks. No, they're, uh, but they're doing pretty well. Uh, only a few reminders. The kids yell out, zombie arms, zombie arms, uh, to remind each other to stay at least an arm's length or two from each other when they're walking in the halls. Oh, I like that. Yeah, zombie arms. I might do know, that right in the newsroom. <laughs> what kind of environment is she trying to create in the classroom? It's a big deal to Sutton to create a safe community because kids can't really learn if they don't feel emotionally safe. She wants them to let them know, you know, they can make mistakes. She was worried that would be hard with masks and social distancing. But I got to say, she's already developed this safety, this feeling of safety uh, by the second or third day. She constantly asks them questions about themselves, tells them little stories about challenges she's had to overcome. And this puts the kids at ease. What about academics? Does Renee Sutton have a sense of where her students are academically? The school has not done formal assessments yet, but she's let them read, write, and do math and is actually quite impressed by their skills so far. Uh, But you can tell there are some students who struggle a bit more with focusing or really understanding how to do certain things. Jenny, I understand a teacher at this school in Westminster tested positive for COVID-19 after the first day, and that sent more than 100 kids in the upper grades back to remote learning. Did that affect uh, Mrs. Seddon's classroom at all? Not really. In fact, the next time I went to her school, her class had two more students and um, the school and district were 
open about it. This makes a lot of headlines when we see COVID cases in schools and some parents will have anxiety about it. I think the schools recognize this will happen. There will be cases and they have a procedure in place to isolate the teacher or the student and quarantine affected groups. Why don't we move uh, onto the whole state? I mean, teachers generally say that in-person learning is going okay, but there are other health concerns. Yes. One teacher at a high-needs school on the Western Slope told me teachers spend a lot of time cleaning and sanitizing everything a teacher, rather a student, touches. And this is taking away a lot of instruction time. Uh, Parents are supposed to fill out a symptom tracker every morning. She says almost none of them do. There's a cold going around her school with symptoms that mirror the virus. And for reasons she doesn't understand, many parents are choosing not to test their child for the virus and instead quarantine them for 10 days. I mean, that's got to affect academics. Lots of people have been worried about students getting behind because of, you know, the spring's remote learning, what we learned there. Yeah, this is quite sobering. The teacher estimates her first graders are at least five months behind where they should be. Many lost all the skills they gained in kindergarten, and she spends an extra three hours a day developing you know, specific activities for her students to help bridge that gap. How is that teacher on the Western Slope doing emotionally? I think she speaks for many when she says she's disheartened, exhausted, and frustrating. And we have to remember, starting salary in this district is $37,000 a year. After 15 years, it's $47,000. Teachers have had to make extra classroom supplies for each child to have their own. And this is on their own dime. She really wants to stay a teacher, but she doesn't see the wider community willing to support education. What are we hearing from teachers in the hybrid model? That is a group of students, you know, group A in front of them in the classroom, and then also preparing kind of taped lessons for group B, you know, who are at home. These teachers I'm hearing are exhausted. It was kind of depressing (laughs) talking to all these teachers on the weekend. Uh, Douglas County stands out. Families there should choose, uh, could choose hybrid or they could choose 100 percent virtual learning. Less than a week before the 100% virtual learning started, the district announced there were problems with it. So teachers were told they had to also teach this third group of learners. So this teacher tells me she's exhausted beyond measure, working three times what she normally does, feeling completely underwater and incompetent. Uh, The district also assigned two furlough days to teachers, and that amounts to a pay cut. Jenny, we've heard that um, a lot. I mean, you know, that if teachers were consulted more, things might have gone more smoothly. You've heard from a teacher in another district where officials decided to introduce a new curriculum this year. Yes. And this particular teacher is teaching remotely. She says it's going well, but because of the new curriculum, teachers must not only map out the lessons, but they have to find resources. So that's the material that demonstrates the concept. And this means round-the-clock work. She says there is also constant parent pressure in emails, especially if a child can't get on Zoom, for Mm. example. Uh, She sent me an audio snippet and she requested anonymity. My stress and anxiety levels are higher than they've ever been, and that includes surviving cancer. I'm not sleeping much at all. Um, When I finally do fall asleep, I'm having stress dreams about school. I'm waking up in the middle of the night thinking about, you know, a student and, oh, the student needs this. I could do this. You know, I need to create this. I need to come up with this. And I can't, I can't seem to get away from it. 
You also connected with a teacher in Boulder who's doing remote learning. She says it's going surprisingly well, I understand. Yes, this is a seventh grade teacher, and she says students seem eager to connect with her and with one another, but she agrees the workload is huge. Her main concern is the inequities in the district. She says they're glaring. Students who have unstable Wi-Fi or they're thrown off uh, you know, periodically throughout the day, they're left to troubleshoot on their own while other students get to have the lessons. And this is a charter school. And she says no one really wants to take responsibility for getting these kids hotspots for Internet. It's interesting, as you've described it, it sounds like teachers are becoming IT support as well, you know, barraged with emails when a kid can't get on or Zoom. counselors, yeah. Uh-huh. Any other concerns? What are other teachers thinking? One teacher says she's finally feeling confident as an online teacher, but now her district is considering returning to the classroom much sooner than October. She's invested a lot of time into delivering an entirely new curriculum online and says teachers haven't been given the chance to deliver really engaging lessons, unlike in the spring. And she's finally doing that now. She says kids want consistency. And with the COVID rates, it's too early to switch up on them now. So I am hearing uh, just an un sustainable workload and all in the face of uncertainty. Jenny, thanks so much for sharing this with us. Thank you, Ryan. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine. She'll be keeping tabs on room 132 at a school in Westminster to see how the pandemic affects learning. We introduced you recently to a prisoner who got out early because of the pandemic. T.J. Abernathy had served nearly all of a three-year sentence at the Crowley County Correctional Facility east of Pueblo when he was summoned to the front office, so to speak. I thought I was in trouble, but uh, it turns out I, I sit down and my case manager hands me some paperwork and it says early release due to COVID-19 considerations. And I just I burst into tears uh, right there. You know, it was just the last thing I expected, I, I literally expected to be handed a write-up for doing something wrong. Mm. And instead, I, I got told I was getting out of prison. Abernathy is one of about 300 inmates who got early release under a now expired executive order from Governor Jared Polis. Well, our guest today helps offenders like Abernathy adjust to life outside, which is even more complicated with the pandemic. Social worker Stacy Putka is executive director of the nonprofit Defy Colorado, which teaches entrepreneurialism in prison so that parolees have a career path. And Stacy, welcome to our program. Hi, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. First off, give us a sense of just how much your workload has grown because of the pandemic and uh, some of these early releases. Yeah, absolutely. We've had 21 of our program participants get released during the time of the pandemic, which is about triple our our regular rate of release. So this is like pushing fast forward on the work you do preparing them for life on the outside, I gather. Yeah, absolutely. But it, it's been a kind of a silver lining because we've always wanted to provide a more robust post-release program and weren't getting enough people out to be able to do that. So we're grateful to have more people out and in our community now. Yeah, the reason you stress post-release is that you begin your work with people while they're still in prison. Character development, job readiness, entrepreneurship. I guess like in normal times, can you describe briefly what that work in prisons looks like? Yes, we run an eight month in prison program and you bring up an excellent point. It's 
one of the things that makes us different from a lot of other programs in Colorado, we have an inside out model. So like you mentioned, we start working with people inside prison and continue to support them in the community. While they're still inside, they go through an eight month program with weekly class sessions and our staff drive to the facilities all across the state to deliver our curriculum focused on character development, entrepreneurial education, and job readiness. And we take mentors with us from all over the state uh, to help people further conceptualize the concepts that we're discussing in class. And some of these mentors are from the business world. I gather the fundamental goal here is that most people in prison in Colorado will be released at some point. You want to make sure they don't go back to prison, huh? Absolutely. Reducing recidivism is the number one goal. And we found that we can reduce recidivism by providing people opportunities for economic stability and meaningful work opportunities. And a lot of people can do that through starting their own business. So the mentors that we bring in are CEOs and founders of businesses, people that work within innovative companies, um, and really all along the the professional spectrum. Can you give us an example, perhaps, of a business that um, a former prisoner has started or an entrepreneurial path they've gone down? Yeah, one that we're really excited about this year. One of our program participants got out after 30 years. And while he was inside, he had developed a patent for a rapid deploy flood mitigation system which basically just means uh, an innovative way to prevent flooding as opposed to filling and stacking sandbags. Uh, So it's a a wonderful solution that can save lives, literally. And he got out this year and actually has started his business. He sent me a picture the other day of the prototype being built in Taiwan. So he's getting ready to launch it and hopefully help a lot of people. All right. That's a picture of your approach in prison. Uh, Now, as we've said, there are all of these early releases. And I have to think that life on the outside is even more challenging because of the pandemic, Uh, the availability of jobs, but also access to technology. Help us understand that dimension. Yeah. Technology is always something that people who are currently incarcerated have a lot of fear and anxiety about. Technology changes so fast and is constantly developing. Um, and so the the fear and worry about how to use technology nowadays is something that is very concerning to people while they're still inside. Think about right now, Ryan, you and I are doing this interview on Google Meets and using all different kinds of technology to make this happen. Mm-hmm. It's become such an essential way of life during COVID for people to maintain employment and connections, social connections and personal connections. So having people come out who don't necessarily have an understanding of technology and be forced to live in a world that is so reliant on technology now is quite the barrier. Well, and it occurs to me that, you know, many libraries are closed at this point, and that was probably Mm -hmm. a, a point of access for parolees. So I I understand you're giving them like a a computer, a phone, some basics. Yeah, we're really honored to be able to provide a Chromebook, a cell phone with three months of data, a gift card for meeting basic needs right when they get out. Um, And we pre-stock the cell phones and the Chromebooks with different resources, videos about how to use technology, 
so that they can really get those technology packs that we're offering them and have an opportunity to know how to use them right away. Um, And they can still meet with our mentors and our staff virtually. Now, is that happening as well in prisons? In other words, are you able to get the kind of outreach work that you do for those who are still behind bars to those folks given the pandemic? It's a little bit more of a snail mail process. So they don't have access to live technology, like live internet or anything along those lines. Um, So we've been recording videos on Zoom out here and then sending them into the facilities via DVD. So actually anyone in the Colorado Department of Corrections right now, there's about 17,000 people, can watch the education channel on their institutional television and watch our Defy Colorado videos, which are helping them prepare for, for jobs life during COVID and re-entry specifically during COVID. Have any of your participants tested positive for COVID-19, either those who are now behind bars or those who were released? So the Colorado Department of Corrections can't legally share with us if people have tested positive. We do have a couple family members that stay in touch Um, And we've received a couple emails about our program participants, specifically at Colorado State Penitentiary, who tested positive um, for COVID-19 and all have since recovered, which is very encouraging. For context, nearly 900 inmates have tested positive for COVID-19 in Colorado's prisons. Is this a much tougher job market to be kind of graduating into? Yes, it is much more difficult for people, mostly because of the the technology barriers and being able to find a job opportunity that really helps people with their career development. Everyone who is in our program is very industrious and very committed to living a legal lifestyle. So they've all found employment And they're working in those essential work kind of jobs, which is wonderful and important. Um, But it's also a kind of this interesting dynamic because several of them were released due to a special needs parole, which meant they have pre-existing conditions that Mm. it wasn't safe for them to be inside the facilities. So they're coming out in order to maintain their safety. And then they're kind of required to do these essential work positions, which have a higher likelihood of exposing them to COVID-19. Right. Interesting. They escape one sort of vulnerability and go right into the jaws of another. Stacy, thank you so yeah. much for painting a picture of this for us. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Stacy Budka is a social worker and executive director of Defy Colorado. That nonprofit fosters entrepreneurship in prisoners and parolees. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with Chuck D., of Public Enemy. He's putting on a show in Colorado. It's not on a stage, but in an art gallery. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. Because of community support, Colorado Public Radio has scaled up its operations, delivering trustworthy information and music to audiences throughout the state on multiple easy-to-access platforms, with spaces for us all to share and embrace stories of hope, resilience, creativity, and joy. 
What CPR brings to your life is only possible because of financial support from the community. Many giving as Evergreen members, donating what feels affordable on a monthly basis. Add your support at CPR.org. Politics, heritage, and long-standing injustices collide in the debate over the Christopher Columbus statue in Pueblo. Months after protests started to bring it down, the statue still stands in the center of the city. As CPR's Benta Berkland reports, it's the last monument of its kind in the state. Protesters tore down Denver's Columbus statue in June, but so far no one has vandalized the Columbus statue in Pueblo. And its fate is the talk of the town. The city's Democratic leaders have resisted calls to remove it and are trying to figure out other ways to de-escalate tensions over what should happen next. It's been the site of regular protests for months. Well, so on Saturdays we're on this side, and on Sundays we're actually in the street and it's completely barricaded off. Um, the barricade this 18-year-old from, activist goes by just um, the, the name Curly. She says she recently changed her public identity because she's faced threats and harassment for her involvement in the protests against colonialism, genocide, racism, and police violence. She leads the newly formed group Young Blood Advocacy. I think the youth is often looked at as uneducated and kind of destructive, and we're here to show them that we are interested in being here in the front lines and to show them that we're here to vote. The effort to remove the statue is also connected with groups angry about the death of Jesse Cedillo, who was shot by a sheriff's deputy in March. The Pueblo County District Attorney determined the shooting was justified. The issue came up at a recent city meeting on the fate of the statue. Our community has let my brother and my family down. That's Jesse's sister, Jalen Cedillo. You dismiss his murderer, and that's exactly what Columbus has made this culture for us and why we need to take the statue down. The statue debate has intensified divisions within the Democratic Party. Local activists want it removed, but other Democratic leaders, such as Mayor Nick Gratisar, are hoping to find a middle ground that the Italian-American community can also support. Gratisar sees the issue as a distraction and says he thinks most people in Pueblo don't really care what happens to the statue. I'm wondering, are we going to put Christopher Columbus on trial? Is that what we want to do? Is that how we want to spend our time? Somebody that died 500 years ago? How about we spend our time trying to better the lives of the poor people, the indigenous people, the black and brown people? Italian immigrants installed the statue in 1905, and over the years it's become more than just a memorial for Columbus. A brick wall next to the bust includes names honoring members of Pueblo's large Italian-American community. The Democratic district attorney and a current city council member are among the local leaders honored on the wall. I want to keep it up. That's Mary Beth Corsentino, the chair of the Democratic Party in Pueblo. Members of her own family are listed on the monument. And it's personal and it's, it's just, it's what it is. It's, it's part of who I am. The fight over the statue is happening as politics in general are heating up in Pueblo. Pueblo has a strong union culture, born from the region's coal mines and steel mill. It has more registered Democrats than Republicans. But four years ago, the county narrowly voted for President Donald Trump. Democrats are trying to come together to rally voters to stop that from happening again. Vicente Martinez Ortega is a Democratic community organizer and said he thinks the effort to remove the statue is linked to everything Democrats should be standing for. 
He likens it to the Chicano movement in the 70s and 80s. It's like all the same issues all over again. And so folks right now are tired of asking for it. Their parents asked for it. So people are getting a little restless. Martinez Ortega says he thinks if the city doesn't reach some conclusion, one way or another, he believes the statue will eventually come down. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. This summer's demonstrations over racial injustice have evolved. In recent weeks, there have been small but destructive gatherings and tense confrontations between protesters and the counter-protesters who've organized to challenge them. CPR's Andy Kenny has been working to understand this new dynamic playing out on downtown streets. During the day on August 28th, hundreds of people assembled in Denver to honor the 57th anniversary of the March on Washington. The gathering in Civic Center Park sounded like any number of racial justice protests that happened here this summer. Hey, listen, one thing I want to do is I want to thank you all for coming out in this weather. Do you understand? Give a hand clap for yourself. Crowds cheered for an end to systemic racism and mass incarceration. As evening set in, a line of self-styled protectors formed around the outside of the rally, mostly men wearing patchwork sets of armor. They had plywood shields, motorcycle helmets, and in some cases, bats and plate armor vests. Uh, I'm, I'm here to protect my fellow comrades. I'm here to protect anybody here who wants to use their free speech to say that Black Lives Matter. That's a 30-year-old man who refused to give his name out of concern that he would be targeted by police or opposition groups. The crowds at evening protests now are far smaller than they were during the nights after Minneapolis police killed George Floyd this May. But today, it's more common to see people geared up like this, and the stakes can feel higher. Counter-demonstrators have also started turning out. And in other cities, confrontations have escalated into violence and several fatalities. But, you know, after everything that happened in Kenosha, I think people need to be ready to, uh, to be shot at. This group that was assembling as darkness set in is what the president might call Antifa. In reality, it's a loose alliance with little central leadership, organized mostly on social media. Here's Polo Phillips, who acts as a protest medic. The people that you see out here all follow different narratives, um, ranging from socialism, uh, ranging from anarchists, uh, Democrats, you know, everywhere in between as well, you know, liberals and centrists as well. There's also a range of behavior. Most people say they just want to march and protect each other. But a much smaller, secretive group is ready to break windows, light fires, and more. A week before the protest I attended, Denver police arrested 12 people late one night outside Denver police headquarters. Most were charged with distributing obstructive equipment, like shields and helmets. But one man faces a felony after he allegedly threw a firework that burned an officer. Another was arrested while carrying 19 ninja stars. Those sorts of tactics are driving disagreement within the protest movement. Um, you, you do see infighting all the time, and not like serious fighting, but lots of arguing, like, should people be destroying stuff or should they not? Several prominent black leaders have said that protesters who break the law distract from the racial justice movement, and Mayor Michael Hancock has promised a crackdown. We're not going to stand for it. We're not going to stand for their anarchy, their chaos, or their mindless uh, destruction in our city. The network of people willing to do damage may only number in the dozens, but they've captured regional and national attention thanks to TV coverage and social media. And in recent weeks, that's drawn a new element to late-night Denver, counter-demonstrators. It's, it's, it's communism, socialism. That, that's what's freaking being pushed. That's John Teagan. 
He's a conservative influencer in El Paso County, and he's active in Trump's Colorado re-election effort. He was on the security team at the U.S. consulate in Benghazi when it was attacked in 2012, and he has since gained a significant online following. In early August, he told a YouTube interviewer that it was time for people to organize to counter the ongoing demonstrations in cities. We're not a militia, um, but we are going to be a defense force that's going to stand up to protect what is ours. Ahead of the August 28th protest, Tegan issued a call to action to his 95,000 Instagram followers to stand up to, quote, Antifa and BLM rioters. He urged them to bring helmets, body armor, and anything to defend or protect themselves, while reminding people that it's illegal to open carry firearms in Denver. I spotted Tegan's group near 11 p.m. 50 or more men were in camouflage and helmets. They were headed east toward Denver's 6th police precinct, where officers had just fired pepper balls and tear gas to clear dozens of people away from a fence around the building. The counter-demonstrators weren't interested in answering questions as they headed toward the scene. Don't play dumb. You know why we're here. We know why you're here. They claimed to be dressed up for Halloween and said repeatedly, we're all Kyle. Oh yeah, I'm Kyle. Hey, we're all Kyle. We're all Kyle. We're all out here for Halloween. That was apparently a reference to Kyle Rittenhouse, the 17-year-old who's been charged with murder after the shooting deaths of three people at a protest in Wisconsin. Deegan had called Rittenhouse an American hero on Instagram. The more I asked, the less they said. But I did capture part of a conversation that some had with a man named David as he passed by. My family is afraid to walk in these streets. David, who was black, told me that he was not happy to see the group on the streets. Uh, I, I felt intimidated, and I, and I felt that I had to let them know that I was ready for them, even without a weapon. Minutes later, the counter-protest met the protest in a parking lot near the precinct. The shouting reached a fever pitch. Police quickly intervened, with a truck full of armored officers jumping between the opposing sides. They fired pepper balls to push the main protest group back down the street. At the same time, a Denver police lieutenant was asking Tegan's group to disperse and thanking them. Want you guys to just disengage and go back to your cars and, and call it a night, okay? Because we don't want to have to take enforcement action on you guys. Okay? Appreciate so, you good. coming here and and yeah. giving us what kind of dispersal you DPD would later say that it was a de-escalation tactic, but many on the left saw that clip as proof of a police alliance with the vigilante group. Tegan did not answer an interview request from CPR. An hour after that face-off, the crowds had vanished. It was like nothing had happened downtown. The streets were silent, and the night ended with only one arrest. In the two weeks since, the protests have continued, and so has the effort to organize counter-forces. Each side watches the other on social media, preparing to meet on the streets again. I'm Andrew Kenny, CPR News. Well, there's still more than a week to read our next book for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. This book was recommended to us at the start of the protests over racism and police brutality, a resource to put this moment in America in context. Turn the Page, by the way, is where we all read together and then discuss the book with the author on a virtual stage. So this time it's The History of White People by Nell Irvin Painter history professor emerita at Princeton and former director of its program in African-American studies. The book is about how race-obsessed the U.S. has been since its founding. 
Here's how the New York Times described the book. Painter's accessible study shows that deciding who is white has always been heavily influenced by class and culture. So pick up The History of White People by Nell Irvin Painter and then join us for the virtual event the evening of Tuesday, September 22nd. It's free and you'll be able to ask the author questions. Details at CPR.org slash turn the page. That's CPR.org slash turn the page. And uh, here's a tip. If you don't have time to read the book, it's still going to be a really interesting discussion. So I hope you'll join us either way. CPR.org slash turn the page. Okay, when we come back, hip-hop legend and illustrator, yes, illustrator Chuck D. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, you've probably noticed there's an election coming up. In Colorado, that means a big Senate race, House contests, and nearly a dozen ballot measures. To help you keep on top of it all, CPR's public affairs team is back with a new season of our state politics podcast, Purplish. I'm Andy Kenny. Each week, Benta Berkland, Caitlin Kim, and I will dive into the big races and the big issues, talk about what we're hearing from candidates and voters, and share the moments that make us go, wait, what? 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 Join us. Find Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. One of the most influential hip-hop albums ever released has inspired a new art exhibit in Englewood. The Terror Dome honors Public Enemy's 1990 album Fear of a Black Planet, revered for its politically charged lyrics, innovative production, and one particular protest song. this month at Black Book Gallery. The show includes visual art from Public Enemy frontman Chuck D, Shepard Ferry, and other artists from around the world. Chuck D, thank you for being with us. It's a pleasure. You helped curate this show. Where did the idea come from? The idea came from the fact that social media, the internet, and the online universe has allowed a lot of people to express themselves online their artwork or their creativity, their music on the World Wide Web. And I just thought it was a a cool time to gather all these contributions, especially from the team that I have. It's called Mad Urgency. And I think the gallery show was to display their works behind the display of my works and use my, I guess, my notoriety as, as a good launching board into their works. Your notoriety, I think we can just call it fame. Yeah, you know, well, fame is, to me, is a misnomer about it. You know, it's also a drug, Mm. and it's also not real. And and that's what art is. Art is pretty much a facsimile of real life. It's art is short for artificial. It's not real life, but in this time, it's a, you know, it's a blur. It's a thin line between the two. 
Wait, art is short for artificial? I never knew that if that's the origin. Well, you can start on your show. What? <laughs> start with Col- Colorado Matter. I mean, look, art is real, but it ain't. It's, 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 it's two-dimensional. It's three-dimensional. I, I don't think art is just something where somebody could just say anything and everything is art. I, I, I do think that there's a line. I think art, when it's at its best, it, it reflects. And uh, it reflects uh, the realities that we know and have seen. And you can go into there and expand those boundaries uh, with art, you know, into the unknown and the unseen. Well, I find it fascinating that you have taken what was born, in a way, in the digital age and online and found a bricks-and-mortar home for it in Englewood in this gallery. Many artists contributed work to this show. Tell us about a piece that you really love, Chuck D. Well, I haven't seen the piece yet, but I know that Andy Katz, he's like one of our, our chief illustrators who's designed for Public Enemy covers, and then Amy Cinnamon and people like Martin Ascom have all embellished their works with the musical realm of hip-hop. I've gone around the planet, you know, and the name of hip-hop and rap music has seen art around the world, but to be able to put it to a canvas and hang it in a particular gallery is, is, is a good discussion. I think that some people may be surprised to see your name listed as an artist on this show. But it's important to note, you were an illustrator before you were a rapper. I wonder what drew a young Chuck D to the visual arts. Um, I was raised independently by my parents to actually go towards the arts. It happened to be in my family, although I don't think it's passed through the blood or energy like that. My great-grandfather was one of the first chief black architects in the New York City, New Jersey area. Mm. My grandfather painted and drew. I did it as a kid. I was further galvanized by comic books and illustrators, Mm. both on the Marvel side, like Jack Kirby and sports illustrators that would put their stuff in the daily newspapers. You know, I thought they were engaging as well, too. Uh, Bill Gallo from the New York Daily News is influential. So I paid attention to that, as well as paying attention to what they called the funnies back in the day, and seeing everything from um, Terry and the Pirates illustrations down to Andy Katz, or especially Charles Schultz. Well, I, I, I love how diverse your set of inspirations is. In other words, I like, I like that it's Charles Schultz and architecture. I do want to reflect on your place in music history, Chuck D. I mean... Public Enemy was already selling a lot of records when it released its third album, Fear of a Black Planet, in 1990. Played off as some intellect Made the call, took the fall, broke the laws Not my fault that they fallen off Known as fair square throughout my years So I growl at the living cow Black to the bone, my home is your home But welcome to the Terradome Fear of a Black Planet turns 30 this year And there are songs about distrust of the police Lack of black representation in Hollywood uh, Misrepresentation in the media is it possible, Chuck D, that this record is more relevant today? The statement of the title is, 
back in 1990. It was actually based off the color confrontation theory of Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. Uh, was a dissertation made into a hip hop rap album. So it was meant to be time capsule, Ryan. Uh, it was meant to be opened up maybe 30 or 40 years. Um, the circumstances are unfortunate that it is relevant because uh, these are the signs of the times. But I would tell you that it's a long period in music and culture, but it's a short period in real life. Mm. And the biggest difference between 1990 and 2020 is that there's been people who have been born who are now adults and into the adult flow, and there's people who have passed on. So people come and go. This is why you, you do your best to eradicate systemic ills, such as racism. I so appreciate your sense of time in that answer, the idea that it, it might have been a long time for arts, but it's a very short time in kind of human history. The album was placed in the Library of Congress's National Recording Registry in 2004. And I'm just curious, does, mm-hmm. does that gesture mean much to you, given just how skeptical the band's view was of the government, you know, of, of, of federal power even? Still skeptical of governments, and I say that plural. I believe art and culture brings human beings together for our similarities and knocks aside our differences. However, governments think diametrically opposed to that. Governments like to divide people, categorize them, name and number them, list them, separate them, and play alongside their their differences and play them. You want governments in this world to do the right thing. And it's shown that the chickens have come home to shoot just with things like climate. The album features one of the most recognizable songs of the rap genre, Fight the Power. And I'll just note that the band this year released a remix featuring artists who've undoubtedly been influenced by Public Enemy. I mean, Nas, members of The Roots, among others. The year is 2020, the number. Another summer get down. Sound of the funky drummer. Music hitting the hard cause. I know you got soul. The information age got him seeing what's really wrong with these racist days. I honor the strong and pity the weak. Your thoughts run your life. Be careful what you think. Haiti beat France in century 17. Salute Tucson and Dessaline. And I do love France. Know what I mean? It's a system I'm talking. Nobody's agreeing. How did this remix come together, Chuck D? Well, it came together with uh, a presentation on, I guess, one of the BET Awards. And, you know, in this time, they thought that as the most important rap record ever, that it would actually unfortunately speak to this time. Also, a little help from my friends just taking the Ringo Starr title. <laughs> um, <laughs> a little help from my friends. People, uh, people like Questlove of the Roots, uh, you know, kind of put it together, uh, along with rap dignitaries such as Nas and the Rhapsody, YG and the one and only black thought. Generations is how long we've been at war. The revolution on all platforms. You break a man's mind and it's back your solidarity is what I'm wearing all black for. For comrades who don't fought without me. It's not to try and change our thoughts about me or to redirect your reports about me. Dear white people, you should take a course about me. Well, just to bring this home to your visual art. Uh, Chuck D, have you have you drawn anything today? Do you have plans to? Is this a daily ritual for you? 
daily ritual. Uh, right now, I'm working on a theme, which is, um, and I try to stay out of making political paintings. I kind of do political illustrations in the cartoonist mode. A lot of things that that's always ends up being 45, and that's the number of the current president. We hope that there's a 46. But painting-wise, I'm taking on five paintings at the same time. And, wow. And what I like for my theme to be, my theme might be like closed down shopping malls, closed down, you know, super franchise stores, especially in this time, it's political. And, um, you know, baseball stadiums. I was inspired by the 1971 Major League All-Star Game, which had 20 future Hall of Famers playing it in the city of Detroit, where my grandparents also lived. And, um, I'm doing like six panels that, you know, about, you know, the beauty of that particular game and how it influenced me as a kid. So those are the weird, quirky things I take on without always trying to take on something relevant to political art because I've done that in my music. I have an anonymous art figure that just likes to deal with, you know, a different aspect of what I'm not publicly known to do. And I have a lot of fun with that. So I'm doing illustrations every day and I have a lot of fun in it. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, I appreciate it, Ryan, and um, I hope people can virtually check it out as well as check it out physically over in Colorado. Chuck D. is the frontman for Public Enemy. There's a new art show based on the band's Fear of a Black Planet album this month at Black Books Gallery in Englewood. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to the team that helps bring this show to air. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrado. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Natasha Watts. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Daniel Mesher. This is CPR News. Stop chasing. 